Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Why is caring for our aging parents so hard? I'm Anne Helen Peterson, and I write for Vox about culture. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. When I was doing interviews for my Vox piece, published earlier this year, on the emotional and financial costs of elder care, I heard from a lot of people who were in the thick of providing care for their parents. There was one woman who talked to me about just how frazzled she was, how alienated she felt from herself, how terrified she was that she'd never be able to find solid financial footing again after caring for two aging parents for the last decade. And then she apologized. She was afraid that she no longer knew how to put two sentences together in a way that made sense. That's how burnt out she was. All of that was very familiar to Liz O'Donnell. Liz navigated years of elder care while working full-time. In 2015, she founded the group Working Daughter to connect with others who were also trying to figure out how to balance their role as caregiving daughters with the rest of their lives. Their lives as parents, as workers, as friends, as partners. Liz recognized what I was describing because she'd been through the gauntlet herself. And even though her parents have now passed away, she hears those same feelings of despair every day in the group of caregivers she helps run on Facebook. And that's why I wanted to talk to Liz today. She really gets it. She gets what it feels like to juggle care on a daily basis. She knows how labyrinthian even finding, let alone paying for additional care can feel. She knows the unvoiced frustrations of people who felt invisible providing this care during the pandemic. And the struggle to sign into Zoom every day while caring for a parent with dementia who couldn't remember what Zoom was. And she's able to speak for people who might just be too exhausted, at least in this moment, to speak for themselves. Liz O'Donnell, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So I want to start a little bit with your own story, because that is part of what really drew me to talking to you is that you have personal experience with elder care. And I, so I want to know, how did you end up in caregiving role and how were you prepared and unprepared for everything that came afterwards? Well, I can start with the fact that I was completely unprepared. Um, <laughs> I think that's 
the one thing I'm the most sure of. My parents were in their 80s and I'm one of three sisters. I was the one who lived the closest and they just needed, you know, a little more and more care as they aged. First, it was, you know, help sorting through the bills and the mail. And then it was mowing the lawn. And then they both stopped driving. My dad just stopped driving because he was older. My mom, because she had a bad fall. So then it was groceries every week and taking them to their many, many different doctor's appointments. And for me, I thought I was in the thick of caregiving when that was going on because I had a full life already. I had two kids, elementary and middle school. I'd written my first book. I had a pretty demanding job with a lot of travel. And so all of a sudden I had this extra stuff. And what I now call it is the caregiver creep. You know, Mm. caregiving kind of creeps up on you and you don't realize, I mean, you're already a busy working mother and you're stressed out, but you don't realize all of a sudden you're even more and more stressed out. And it's because this stuff is just sort of creeping up on you. So I was going along like that for a couple of years thinking, wow, this caregiving stuff is really, really hard. And then I had what so many other people experience and what you wrote about in your article, the cliff, right? Where all of a sudden there was the crisis and I got the call. And in one day, both of my parents were diagnosed with terminal illnesses. Wow. In one day. Yeah, it was this weird series of events where... My mom called my sister out of state and she called me and said, you need to go to our parents right away. Dad's acting really strange. Mom's kind of afraid to be with him. Can you go see what's going on? So I brought my dad to the ER, a rookie mistake now I know, but I thought that way we could get him a psych evaluation because he was acting, you know, really confused and forgetful. Mm -hmm. And so he ended up in a geriatric psych ward being evaluated. In the meantime, I put my mom in a respite care in an assisted living facility because I had to go back to work and she couldn't really live on her own. So she's at this assisted living facility. I'm juggling work and my dad being in the psych ward and she starts to experience stomach pains, gets transferred to local hospital. They transfer her up to Boston near me. So in one day I go over to the hospital where my dad is to meet with the team and they say it's Alzheimer's, dementia. You need to find a memory care facility. I go out to the parking lot and before I even leave, the doctor at the other hospital calls and says, Liz, your mother has ovarian cancer. And I think you should come over now so we can tell her together. Wow. All right. So I want to backtrack just a tiny bit because I think that there's a lot of themes that came up in your story that are pretty common. And the first is that you are a daughter (laughs) and that you are (laughs) responsible for the care. So can you talk a little bit about who usually ends up doing this sort of care for their parents? Yeah, I think statistics would tell you it's the oldest daughter Mm -hmm. in my case. I'm the youngest, so I was unique in that. But yeah, the caregiver statistics show that it's typically the daughter. But more and more men are taking on the role. I think 40% of all family caregivers now are men. But uh, and in our case, there were no brothers, so it fell to me. And And there's a saying in caregiving that there's always one. There always seems to be one family member, usually a daughter, who just takes on the bulk of the role. And it seems to me that part of that is that like you have to have a point person, right? It's just a lot easier to have one person who always knows what's going on instead of trying to make decisions by committee. But then the result of that is like, this is another full-time job that someone is taking on either in addition to their existing paid work or whatever unpaid work that they might be doing in the home as mothers or as caregivers to others. Yeah, it's totally a full-time job. And, you know, we talk a lot about women and their second shift. And I'm always like, what about the third shift? You know, for, <laughs> for the sandwich generation, there's a third shift. There's 
the paid outside the house job, there's the child care, and there's the elder care too. So there's this third shift that doesn't even, you know, have a name yet. There was a hospice nurse who once told me that the reason some people become the one in their family is because they have the compassion and the organizational skills to be the caregiver. And I, mm. I, I kind of like to lean into that idea, you know, that, oh, you know, because I spent so much time going, I'm the youngest, why me? And when she sort of framed it like that, I mean, certainly it fed into my ego, but it made the job feel a little bit better. Right. Well, it frames it as a positive skill instead of just like a, I have to do all of these things. It's more like I'm doing this in part because I am good at it instead of just like I'm doing it because no one else will do it. Yeah. And I think framing when you're a caregiver is so important because I'm sure we'll get into the stress and the the challenges and how hard it is. And so if you can find ways through the process to frame this as a win or a positive, it's so helpful. And another thing that I want to define just for people who are unfamiliar, because I think a lot of people who are my age, which is older millennial and your age, are very familiar with the word sandwich generation or sandwich like position, sandwich caregiving. But what does that actually mean? Yeah, so the sandwich generation are those people, often Gen X, but definitely more and more millennials, who are caring for both parents and children at the same time. So the average family caregiver is typically a woman in her late 40s, early 50s, and she has at least one child under the age of 18 and one adult parent over the age of 65 that she is somewhat responsible for. And I bet in writing your article, a bunch of women said to you, it's not just a sandwich, it's a panini, right? Because you feel <laughs> so pressed. <laughs> I, I mean, it's not funny, but that, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I keep telling my peers who are in their late 30s and early 40s who don't have to deal with this yet that like, it's coming, like we are close. It's just gonna be five years, six years, seven years. Um, but sometimes I think that... People don't want to deal with it because it seems like such a large and difficult thing to put your arms around, which really leads me to my second question, which is that there's this story that we tell ourselves about what's going to happen when our parents get older or what's going to happen to us when we get older. So do you think that you could kind of lay out what that story is that especially as people in the United States, like what story we tell ourselves is going to happen? Well, I'm really curious to know what story you're referring to, because for me, (laughs) well, the story for me was, and for so many of my peers was, you sometimes imagine like, oh, someday my parents are going to die. You know how we we kind of have these tendencies to imagine future sad things happening. I don't know if it's a woman thing or what, but you know, someday my parents are going to die and I'm going to be really sad and I'm going to be the adult. And so for me, it was that thought process from time to time, like what will it feel like to have no parents or, you know, to be Mm -hmm. sad that my mom and dad passed away. The reality is for many of us, it's not that our parents are going to die. It's that our parents are going to get old and sick. I mean, of course they're going to die, but before death, is going to come this whole phase that I never, I never told that story. And so to Mm. me, that's what's really surprising. Yeah, I think that that's part of the story that I'm thinking of. The other part of the story is that like, as my parents become more infirmed, we will figure out the care, that it will be straightforward and we will maybe get someone to come and help them in their house and we'll work it out right? That like, it's just like a, it's like a series of boxes that you can check the same way that say when you're having a baby, 
you're like, okay, I just need to find an OBGYN and then I need to buy these things and then I'll have a kid, which, you know, both of those stories are are fantasies, but I think that they endure in order to, you know, keep us going from day to day. But I do think that like the endurance of that story and maybe not telling the darker parts of it or, or having them be more visible is part of what has led us as a society into more unsustainable situations. Yeah, you're right. There is that story. And it is, it's everything from someday I might have to cut my mother's lawn or my father's lawn for him and drive them to doctor's appointments. But yeah, I'll hire somebody or they'll, you know, go to an adult day center or somebody will come in a couple of hours a day or a week, you know, home health aid and help them out. And that will be affordable or, you know, you're not even thinking about the affordability of that. You know, and I might pull up some area rugs. I mean, if you're really thinking this through, right? So that they right. don't have trips and falls. I mean, that's sort of the detailed level of thought. I'll get someone to come in and put it like a grab bar in the shower and it'll be fine, that sort of thing. Right, right. and those are the people who are really thinking it through. They're thinking, you know, grab <laughs> yeah, bars that's and trips. And, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then you find, oh, wait, no one pays for this. Like, there aren't programs that pay for this. And care is really, really expensive. And two to three hours a week is nothing. Yeah, nothing. So Liz, can you kind of go through and tell us the main scenarios that exist right now in the United States for elder care? Yeah, so there's aging at home, which is when you know an elderly person does just that. They stay in their home. And oftentimes, you know, they might do that without any support. And sometimes they might do that through a home health aid coming in or a volunteer coming in. I see in the working daughter community, lots of times adult children moving in to their parents' homes so that they mm. can be there 24-7 to help them. And sometimes you might see an adult child moving their parent into their home. So that's one scenario. And that is, you know, purely self-funded and self-managed, if you will, care. Then there are assisted living facilities. And I think it's really important to note that assisted living facilities, the important word there is assisted. These are not places where you're going to get nursing care. You're going to get a level of assistance and they they sort of evaluate. And that assistance is typically around what they call activities of daily living. So maybe some help with cleaning the apartment or bathing. There's usually a dining hall and meals are all provided. There is nursing staff on hand, but it's mainly to administer medication. It's not nursing care. And what is surprising to so many people is that assisted living is private pay. Assisted living facilities are not funded by Medicare. They are completely private pay and they are expensive. And then a step up from a care perspective are memory care facilities. And so that's for somebody who might need to be in a locked facility because of cognitive issues, need a higher level of care and supervision because they may wander or have, you know, some kind of dementia and need care around that. And some are better than others. You know, some are really just that. It's just an assisted living with a locked door so people can't wander. And some actually really focus on, you know, engaging people and working on cognitive skills and that sort of thing. Again, private care and take an assisted living cost and probably add another thousand dollars on monthly rent for memory care. And then there are skilled nursing facilities. And some of those are private pay 
and even more expensive because in a skilled nursing facility, you get just that, you get skilled nursing. And there are also skilled nursing uh, facilities and rooms available through Medicaid. So if you qualify because you don't have you know, a lot of assets or income, then you can get into a skilled nursing facility. And of course, the challenge there is finding one that you feel good about and that has quality. So does that break it down? Yeah, yeah, that really does. And I think one thing just for like totally basic, something that I totally did not understand until I really started digging into this. I love that you clarified that like Medicare does not cover assisted uh, living scenarios. So Medicaid is something that kicks in if your parents don't have a lot of money or a lot of assets. And Medicaid can also help cover home health aids, right? Uh, yes, it can. Yeah. <sighs> it's so complicated. It is so complicated. And, and you know, another level of complication, we talked a lot about, you know, how people are living longer and with chronic illnesses. And how do you calculate how much income you're going to need? You know, it's such a balancing act. I know for me, at, at the end of my father's life, he was running out of money and a series of events happened where he was hospitalized and then discharged. And it was horrible for him. And it was actually horrible for me to have him hospitalized those last few times. At the same time, it would kick in benefits and cover his costs just when I needed them so that, you know, his money and his life kind of ended around the same time. But I couldn't plan for that. And I was constantly like wondering what do I do next? What do I do next? Yeah. And it seems like there's a lot of tension too for people who are living in their homes and that's cheaper because, you know, they're not paying rent essentially, right? Like they're able to still stay in their homes and aren't paying a ton of money on, on mortgages or maybe have paid off their mortgage, but it's more work in facilitating and and putting together the care schedules because they are still in their homes. So you have to kind of balance that idea of like, okay, it's maybe cheaper, but it's more mental work, but we could sell the house, but how long would the proceeds from the house last in order to provide care in, in, in a facility? Like, it's just really, really complicated. It's really complicated. And and it's also why I think it's so important that if you can talk to your parents or if you are an aging person, you really think about what quality of life means to you and what your definition Mm -hmm. of it is. So that if quality of life means to you that you are going to live in your own home, you know, dog garnet till the end of time. Okay, so what is that going to require? What does that look like? Or if quality of life is that you maintain a level of activity or you travel or whatever. Okay, so what is that going to look like? And and knowing that there's no one right answer for any person or family mm-hmm. and knowing that when your parents, again, assuming no cognitive decline, make a choice about what their living situation is going to be, that doesn't mean it mandates what you have to do. So your parent makes a choice to stay home. And as you pointed out, that's going to require a lot of upkeep and care and mental (laughs) check-ins and all of that. It doesn't necessarily mean it becomes your obligation because your parent chose that path. And there are, I should note too, there are lawyers who really specialize in this sort of work and in figuring it out. So there are resources available if people have means. And especially if your parent is like, well, I don't know who I'd talk to about this. Like you can research that together and and find out people who who know a lot more than 
than just us talking about it on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think, like you said, if you can afford it, an elder law attorney is some of the best money you will spend because they understand Medicare versus Medicaid and spend down and you know what your asset level needs to be. They can help you access public benefits like you know veterans benefits. It's great money if you can spend it. And if you can't spend it, there are seminars oftentimes held at assisted living facilities or at your local libraries where elder law attorneys will come in and, and give you the broad overview. So there is still access. So what do you think are the two or three or four or 10 things that people slam up against when the reality of caregiving actually comes to bear? Uh, cost, absolutely. Time is the other one. Um, you know, if somebody is sick and infirm and um, octogenarian or, you know, whatever, someone coming in a few hours a day, what about, you know, the other 22 hours in the day? So how do you fill in that time? I think, you know, so that piece and that, I mean, obviously that's related to the money piece. And then the other piece that I don't think we think about and that when we compare child care and elder care, we do a disservice, is the emotional sort of tailspin that elder care throws you into because for a number of reasons. One, we're talking about end of life, and that's not something we've probably talked a lot about. Two, it shakes our identity. You know, I have always been the daughter and have had parents who were the adults. Now I'm caring for them. What does this mean? And I'm looking at end of life and I'm looking at the fact that someday I won't have parents and I will become that adult. And it's intimate care. And I'm dealing with an adult who has, you know, assuming there's no cognitive decline, has a level of autonomy that I also have to layer in there. So, you know, when my son was little and I would take him to daycare and sometimes he didn't want to go and he'd kick and scream. And I knew the minute I left, you know, he'd be smiling and happy, but he still had no choice whether he wanted to go or not go. I could make that two-year-old boy, you know, I could take him to daycare. You're going. Yeah. I can't tell my parents, you have to do this. They're adults. Yeah. And at some point, some people have to make those sorts of decisions. And that can, I think, be really, really difficult. The one thing that I have heard people say to me as they're trying to figure out plans moving forward is trying to be more prepared. And and maybe they're trying to be more prepared because I personally won't shut up about it. Like ever since I started reporting on this, I like, have been the annoying person at parties who is like, have you talked to your parents about their elder care plan? But they say, my parents won't talk to me about their finances and they also won't be transparent with me about their medical issues. And I think some of that is wound up with that idea of like, I'm the parent, you're the kid. You know, it's my business. I can figure this stuff out. But what's lost when there's that real barrier, both in talking about the financial planning, but also the health planning? Oh, yeah, so much is lost. Well, first of all, I will you invite me to a party because I've stopped getting invitations <laughs> because this is all I talk about now, too. I can't stop. It's all I ever talk about. But so much is lost when our parents aren't willing to talk about elder care with us. And I'd also point out when we're not willing to talk about it with them. I remember my poor yeah. mother one Thanksgiving after dinner wanting to talk to me about she had done me a huge service, planned her funeral and 
her will and everything. And she tried to bring it up. And I was like, oh God, don't talk about this. You're ruining Thanksgiving. I mean, what a dope I was in looking back on that because it was such a gift. So we lose the opportunity to normalize it, right? It's going to happen. But we also make it so much more work for both parties, for both the person who's aging and the person who's going to have to do the sleuthing, right? To figure out, you know, what money they have and, and what the passwords are and where everything is. And I do think it stems from, you know, different places for different people. But in some, it's a parent wanting to remain a parent. I mean, it's why you often hear when people die, say someone's in hospice and you've got the adult children sitting by their side and a parent often passes when that adult child leaves the room to get a cup Mm. of coffee or make a phone call or whatever, because parents, I think, are just inclined to be the parent and the protector all the way up to the end. So that that's part of it. I think part of it is fear. I mean, I think from what I've seen, aging is can be pretty darn scary. And it's a series of losses and losing control over certain things. So there's some stubbornness and obstinance and hanging on to, I can do this, stay out of my business. I mean, it's a whole host of reasons. Yeah. And this I think a lot of this has to do too with something that we talked a little bit about earlier, which is the cliff, and that people think that they're managing things and don't need to make these preparations and they think that they're managing and they think that they're managing and then there's a crisis that happens and usually it's something like a fall or a diagnosis or just things get really extreme really quickly and the time that you thought that you had to prepare just disappears. Oh, absolutely. Um, Because these are things that are easy to put off because they're not pleasant and sometimes they involve a lot of work. I mean, in my own life, my husband was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer a year after my dad died. So I became a spousal caregiver too. And, And my husband passed at 52. And so, you know, I went from elder care to, okay, I'm going to take a break. You know, my parents have both passed. I'm going to have a little fun for a little while, right into spousal care and then into why the hell didn't we prepare for this? You know, Mm -hmm. I should have known better. I wrote a book about aging parents (laughs) and I didn't want to talk to my husband about life insurance or any of that stuff. There's a big reason why understanding how to manage elder care is so elusive to us. And that's simply because it's invisible. We don't talk about it at work. It's not generally discussed when we meet up with groups of friends for drinks. We don't hear about it much in the media. As people age, they generally need more care. It's inevitable. So why does it seem so impossible to talk about? I'll ask Liz O'Donnell what she thinks after a quick break. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen 
for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off borough.com slash box. I want to talk a little bit about the invisibility just generally of elder care. I think that this is changing a little bit. You know, a lot of people that I talked to while I was reporting my article said that, you know, where we are with childcare today and talking about the needs for childcare and planning and crisis in childcare, we have moved a lot in the last 20 years and that where we are with elder care is about 20 years behind that. So I'm hoping that maybe we can be part of this larger conversation of making it visible. And I know you have already. So why is it so hard in say the office to talk about caregiving needs when it's for an aging parent or relative? Yeah, I always say 10 years, so uh, I guess I'm more optimistic than I thought, but <laughs> but I do. I mean, you can see the parallels on the curve as a society as, you know, as we look at how we're dealing with this. I think in the office, it's a couple of things. You know, again, back to this theme of it's unpleasant, it's kind of squeamish. We as a society are not comfortable talking about end of life types of issues. Some of the things you deal with as a caregiver, you know, involve the bathroom and hospitals and things that you don't necessarily talk about in normal company. You and I do at parties, but you'll see your invitations <laughs> dry up as well. Um, I, but I think then there's the part where, you know, child care in a work setting is visible to some degree. Mm-hmm. You know, Liz is having a baby. You see her stomach growing. You plan for her maternity leave, how you're going to fill on the work. The company might throw you a little shower. You send pictures after the baby is born. You know, people say, bring the baby by to the office, obviously pre-COVID. You come back, you share photos. There are some predictable milestones and interruptions in Liz's work life that you can kind of plan for. And it's mostly joyous. With elder care, you don't see it. You just see that, you know, Liz is starting to take a lot of phone calls. Liz is starting to be absent a lot. Liz seems a little grumpier than usual. Liz, you know, dropped the ball (laughs) on some things at work. You don't see caregiving. You're not like, yay, Liz, let's throw you a party. You're going to be caring for your parents right now. And we want to give you some of the gifts and tools that are going to help you. So it's invisible in the workforce. And then the third part, I think, is everybody's situation is so different. So how do you really address it or talk about it in the workforce? You know, like I might choose to go hands in and be the one, or you might be the long distance sibling or, you know, it's all so different. Yeah. I was thinking about someone I talked to for the piece whose mother had early onset dementia that she had to start dealing with in a very serious way when she was 28 years old. And 
how as a 28-year-old in the workplace do you talk about that? Right. She doesn't have kids of her own. Um, so she hasn't even like had to deal with larger conversations about caregiving. But she had to make decisions about finding a place for her mother to live across the country. And that's something that would be really difficult. And people aren't used to talking about as 28 year olds. It's just there's no roadmap out there for someone like her. Yeah. And I remember there was a story, this incident after my dad died and I was back at work and you know, we were having some kind of internal meeting. And at the end of the meeting, my coworkers were just sitting around and one of them was planning a wedding. And she was asking everybody in the room, she's like, anyone have a rule of thumb for how much alcohol you order per guest for the reception? And without even thinking, because this was now my new normal after years of caregiving, I said, well, when I plan my dad's funeral, this was the formula I used. And I'm the only Gen Xer in the room. It was, you know, millennials, maybe younger. And yeah. I mean, I just killed the vibe. <laughs> and I didn't mean to. I was really just, you know, those are the parties, if you will, that I had planned recently. And I had some useful advice. And all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, it occurred to me like, shut up, Liz. You can't talk about this. Like you no, just made see, yourself. <laughs> I totally disagree that you should tell yourself to shut up in a situation like that. I think that should just be normalized, you know, like talking about planning funerals. If more people talk about it, then it won't seem like this terrifying thing that you're like, someday I'm going to have to plan a funeral and it's going to be horrible. And it, it will be horrible for other reasons, but the logistics shouldn't be one of those horrible parts. Well, two things. One is I found this statistic or a piece of data when I was writing my book that apparently there are as many small decisions to make in planning a funeral as there are in a wedding. Wow. Um, I know, but it's actually not that hard. But but the other thing is, I'm with you. I mean, I'm all about normalizing this conversation, obviously. But when you are that elder caregiver at work and you don't know that anyone else is going through it and you see the toll it's taking on your career and your status at work and you're, you know, and it, you feel so othered and so different from everybody else. Mm -hmm. That's when you say, shut up, Liz, because it's yes. just, you know, you're just so oversensitive. Yeah, no, I totally get that. And, you know, there's a couple companies that I looked into while I was writing my piece who are increasingly offering elder care benefits. So one of the things that they're doing is offering services for someone to help coordinate the care because that's oftentimes the really difficult thing is trying to figure out like, okay, so this caregiver can't come from, you know, eight to four anymore. So I need to find a new caregiver. Like just, you know, they sometimes call it a concierge almost, but it's really, I think of it as a coordinator. And then also some benefits for it. Like it's a company that... It, Instead of offering supplements to pay for, say, daycare, they also offer a, a monthly stipend for caregiving. And it's very rarefied, I think, right? Like this is for a company that is really trying to be competitive in the tech sphere. But I wonder if this is going to be slightly more normalized moving forward. What do you think? I hope so. And I do think so. Um, and I'm familiar with some of those companies and I think there are some great ones out there and it is a really valuable benefit because one of the challenges in caregiving is there are resources out there. There are plenty of resources out there, but sort of marshalling them and figuring them out when you're already overtapped and tired is a huge, huge task. So these concierge type companies that you can access through your workplace benefits really, really provide a great service. I'm a big fan. I think we will see an increase in these benefits. I mean, I'm being optimistic because I know companies have been slow to adopt care-related benefits, but I think in light of, you know, what we're talking about, the great resignation 
and how hard it is for companies to recruit right now. And the she session and the fact that, you know, so many women have left the workplace and hopefully companies are going to care about that and want women back in the workplace. I think we will see more benefits because they have to offer them to recruit and retain. I mean, and this is one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is that, you know, these benefits should not be limited to people who have jobs that are highly in demand that are like the top five, 10% of the workforce. Like there's a way to think about the benefits that are being offered by the workplace and think about like, well, what if this was a structure that was in place that the government helped facilitate? And, you know, there are agencies like the area agencies on aging that are a model of this sort of like assistance that if they could be made even more robust than they currently are, that maybe could take that form. Have you thought about that at all? Yeah. In fact, I was on a call um, with some people yesterday thinking about just that topic. Like what are some of the the big things government can do to help? And it was specifically around workers and yeah. caregiving. And, you know, what are some of the the less expensive, perhaps, things that companies will be more willing to adopt. And it's the marshalling of resources and the figuring out how to put them all together and present them. Like you said, it could be through, you know, a care concierge type benefit, but that's probably going to be for, you know, only a certain type of worker and workplace. But the resources do exist. The figuring them out, organizing them and putting them all together, if we could marshal resources around marshalling the resources, that could be <laughs> that could be a huge help. I mean, and the other thing is oftentimes a caregiver is looking for those at two or three in the morning after waking up from like, you know, that panic insomnia of being a caregiver. If those things aren't organized, forget about it. Yeah, I think that a lot of people have had the experience of Googling, how do I figure out wh- where to put my parent? Or how do I figure out how to find care for my parent? And ending in some pretty low quality websites that don't actually tell them very much and certainly don't tell them much about costs. So there's just so much opaqueness to the process that if we could come up with some sort of landing page that was a lot more useful, even that would be a huge step forward if there was like a really good website. It's so true. And it's getting, it is getting better. I know, you know, I started caring and 2013, 14, 15, and I would have those insomnia nights and I would type in just those things that you said into Google. And I'd either get to a government website where it said, click here for more information. And when you would click there, it would say, click here for more information. I mean, (laughs) you just went in circles and circles. Or it was these private websites and the way they wrote about care was all like halos and angel wings Mm -hmm. and what a blessing. And just sit down with your parent. You know, like I had to talk to my dad about not driving. You know, we'll just sit down and explain to him why it upsets you and he'll hand over the keys. Yeah, I think three minutes into the conversation, I was dropping F-bombs and the conversation (laughs) ended when he said, I have 60 years of experience. No one's a better driver than me. I mean, (laughs) yep. Thanks yep. for the help. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Like no one is is like those websites. I can just see the clip art too, right? It's always like, it's almost always a white person, but like has like white hair. Like it looks like a brochure for like precious angels or like for a church. And everyone's just having a great time doing all their care. It is not the vision of what it is actually like in any sort of way. It's so funny. Whenever I do a keynote on this topic, I have slides and it is, if you, you know, stock photography assumes all family caregivers are white, like you said, and everything is happy. And there are these three (laughs) poses that come up. One is like the daughter is behind the mother and she has her arms kind of around her neck. I'm like, what is that? The choke hold? And (laughs) um, 
One is like the stare to nowhere where the mother and the daughter are like just gazing off into the sunset happily. And the other one is the two of them have their foreheads pressing. Like who does yes. that? Who does that? <laughs> Supposedly collaborating together to come up with what like the future is. Yeah, really, like, Mom, I'm like, moving you to a nursing home. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like, it's great. Yeah, um, it doesn't help. So one thing that... I really love talking to you about when we spoke earlier is that, you know, you help facilitate and run a Facebook group for other uh, working caregivers. And as a result, you really had a pulse on the struggles that caregivers have been going through over the course of the pandemic, during the height of the pandemic, but continuing now. And one thing that really struck me was that there was so much visibility in so many articles about parents and the struggles that they were going through trying to figure out care from home and work and that sort of thing. And rightly so, right? Like this was a big struggle, but there was so little, like one or two articles about what it would be like to try to provide elder care in, in isolation. So what sort of struggles like that were you hearing from your community? Yeah, that was really, really frustrating. And the word caregiver, you know, it means different things to different people. So I would mm -hmm. see a headline about, oh, the challenges of caregivers. I'm like, finally. And it was about parents because, you know, that's obviously a care, parents are caregivers. Um, so the invisibility, it hurts. It hurts these caregivers who already don't feel like they have social support. And then nobody seems to be talking about or caring about them. And yet their struggles are so real. I mean, if you're working from home with a parent who has dementia, I mean, I heard stories about parents Zoom bombing, right? Or, yeah. or you know, you have to keep your parent occupied and busy in the other room while you're on a Zoom call. I mean, we talk all the time about the same challenge with kids. And again, rightly so, like you said, but these are very real challenges. And, and my math says that there are roughly the same number of working daughters as there are working mothers. I mean, if that mm. number is still around the 23, 25 million number, when you back out, you know, how many family caregivers, how many are women, how many work, it's about the same number. But, you know, there's absolutely no correlation in how we talk about these issues. Why do you think that is? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, one of the things I go back to oftentimes when I think about elder care is that it's somewhat new. I mean, obviously not completely new, but, yeah, but totally. in mass, right? I mean, I think about my grandparents, you know, four grandparents all died from some kind of cardiac related health issue quickly. So I didn't grow up seeing elder care, not because I didn't have compassionate parents, but because they didn't have to provide elder care. Their parents got sick and died quickly. So this is somewhat a new phenomenon, at least, you know, at scale. Yeah, I think this is something that is not clear enough. Is that like part of the reason this is a huge problem is because people are living a lot longer and also they're living a lot longer with much more complicated diseases. So it's not just that like the actual length of life has demanded more care and more extended care, but they can manage diseases in a way that needs a lot of assistance. So someone can be in and out of the hospital. They can need a lot of rehabilitation and a lot of medication and constant supervision in a way that even 20, 30 years ago, there just wouldn't be treatment that would keep that person alive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Dr. Joe Coughlin, who runs the Age Lab at MIT, wrote a book called The Longevity Economy. And mm. he talks about, you know, our challenge now is providing quality of life for 100 years. 
that is a new thing. And it's it's exactly yeah. what you said. It's not just that we're living longer, but when we're living longer, the chances that we'll live with a chronic illness are just that much greater. And so we are just now figuring out like live on the spot, how do you do that? How do you provide quality of life to somebody, you know, for potentially a hundred years with a chronic illness? Well, and here's something that I think most people don't realize too, is that let's say you get someone who is coming to your parents' house or even coming to your house to help care for your parent. Most of those home health aides, like there are things that they can't or won't do because of liability, because of training. So there's a lot of things that fall to the daughter, the son, the caregiver that they have no training for, but they're the only person who can administer this uh, medication without liability. They're the only person who can lift their parent without liability. Do you get people who are surprised by the fact that, oh, I have to still lift my parents, even though I'm paying all of this money to have care in the home? I don't see the surprise so much from the caregivers themselves. I think I'm generalizing here and I might be borderline, you know, halo and angel wings myself here, but I think (laughs) part of being a caregiver is just, you just do it because you think about all of these unknown tasks that, you know, no one ever would have imagined that they were doing. And you think about all of the different learning curves that we come up to, you know, learning on the job so quickly from the financial aspects to the legal aspects to the multi, you know, interpersonal relationships that we're managing. And then there's the medical. So I think caregivers to some degree, again, major generalization are just like getting it done. Like, oh, I have to lift you. Oh, I have to take you to the bathroom. Like it's just on and on. I think it's the rest of the world and those who haven't become caregivers yet who would be shocked and surprised to know just how much medical care is provided by untrained family members. I mean, I've cared for wounds. I've given injections. I sorted 14 pills a day. I cleaned IV lines. I mean, while I was working full-time as a marketing executive and raising two kids, it's crazy. And I don't think that is a well-known fact at all. Well, and that's pointing back to the fact that it is a second job, right? A third job, a third shift that you are trying to serve and you have to learn all of these new skills very quickly. And also someone's life, your parents' life is dependent upon it. Like that is an an incredible amount of stress to put onto someone. Yeah, and back to, I think what you were trying to talk about around (laughs) um, the pandemic and these caregivers and the people in my group. I mean, that's what was really palpable in the conversations in the Facebook group during the pandemic is everything became fraught every decision, every, you know, go to the grocery store, don't go to the grocery store, take the subway or the bus to work, don't take the subway or the bus to work, visit my parent or don't visit my parents, isolation or, you know, protection from the virus. Uh, I mean, the level of stress on top of the level of activity on top of whatever else you have going on in life, it's pretty incredible. So we've talked a little bit about like what even just a really good website would do. What do you think needs to happen on the societal level, just in terms of mindsets, shifting mindsets, that sort of thing, in order to make elder care more navigable as just a society? Yeah, I mean, I think the simplest thing is we need to talk about it more. And and I'm always so grateful for these conversations because you know, just in the past, 
I don't know, seven, eight years since I've been involved in caregiving, the conversation has ramped up so much, but we need so much more of it. And again, back to what we were talking about, the articles about, you know, childcare and school and COVID, again, all a really worthy conversation, but it's not just about getting your kindergartner on Zoom. It's all of the other things that we just talked about. So we just need to talk about it more so that we're more prepared, that we normalize it, that we have language for it. I mean, I think that is a huge huge first step. I think we need to look at it, you know, obviously from the policy standpoint, right? And looking at, you know, paid leave and, you know, what else we can do for caregivers. We need to look at it from a workplace standpoint and what are the benefits that we can offer? How do we make care and career compatible? We need to look at it from a healthcare perspective. You know, how are we training and sensitizing doctors and nurses to the fact that family caregivers are part of the team? I mean, that's all a part of it too. And then I think we have to go back to you know, sort of the core of where we find care and look at paid caregivers are poorly paid caregivers. And imagine if there was quality care that I could rely on so that I could go to work. And that would mean that the person I've hired to care for my mother or father is actually earning a living wage and getting benefits and, you know, the workplace protections that I get at my job so that they could do a quality job and I could feel good about outsourcing caregiving. I mean, I think that's the start. I love it when the person that I'm talking to in a podcast like just gives me the perfect segue into the next question that I wanted to ask, which is that I really do think that making healthcare providers, care providers, in-home care providers, making that into a good job, right? A job that has benefits and consistency and a livable wage. It's remarkable how much that could change the calculus of how much work it is for family caregivers, if they could have that sort of reliable assistance from someone who, you know, is going home and able to care for their family as well. Totally. I mean, and, and it's also the right thing to do, right? But, yes. um, you know, it's the right thing to do in any domestic work, right? It's, I mean, I think, you know, it's the yes. right thing to do to make sure that the person you might hire to clean your house is earning a living wage and has, you know, all of the benefits and everything that goes with having work and that they're not sacrificing their family to make a living. But then, you know, when you think about the person who's providing care for your parent, there's another layer to it. It's not just about making sure that this person can take care of their family while they're taking care of yours. But like, so what if your housekeeper like skips the bathroom one week or doesn't do a good job dusting? So be it. But the person who's caring for your parent like you need to know that it's quality. And so if we'd started treating them like it was a quality job with the salary and the benefits that go along with a quality job, then you know that you can trust them and you can trust the people that you love and you can not feel rotten that you're going to work and outsourcing this to someone else. Yeah, and I think that this is one of the struggles, especially as Americans who are often so focused on the individual is that we understand this is really hard for me. Like my job in caregiving in, in this moment is really, really hard. And I want to make it better for myself or for, you know, my family members. And I get that. I get that focus. But sometimes the only way to make it better for us as individuals is to really zoom out and to think about, oh, if I make this better for all of the workers in this industry, if I think about the ways in which the government can help subsidize and normalize wages so that they can go higher because we certainly can't pay for it out of our pocket. 
then it will also trickle down and make life easier for me. But that's really hard when you're so exhausted and you're really focused on the individual. And also when, as you know, a lot of people have told me, caregiving is so exhausting that when you're done with it, you're not agitating for larger changes. I actually think that you are really unique in this in that you have gone through it, not just twice, but then again with your husband. And, and now you say, I still really want it to change. Yeah, I see a mix. I mean, I definitely see the people. And I thought that's where I was going. Well, I don't know. You know, after my dad died, I was like, I'm going to have a party for a couple of years. And obviously the <laughs> universe had different, very different plans for me. But um, I do see a lot of people who come out of caregiving who do want to do something, who do want to yeah. organize. Because when you think about, and, and I've touched on like the incredible skill set you develop, the all-in sort of mentality that you have, and then it's over. And where you channel all of that knowledge and that experience. So I do meet quite a few caregivers. And I think that's where you see some of the innovation coming into on caregivers who are, you know, developing these benefits and the technology and that sort of thing. It's like they want to channel everything they learned. And yeah, and then there are those who are just like, I have to put that behind me and I have to find a way to sort of recover from the trauma of everything I went through. But I think if we could marshal post-caregivers, you know, to organize around this, it would be huge. I think marshalling caregivers themselves is just, they're too exhausted right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that also, I think, is another note is how can we create more solidarity between unpaid caregivers and paid caregivers? Because I think that solidarity happens in the home. You know, people who are Mm -hmm. like, we are part of a team together who are working to care for my mom or my dad. But thinking too about like, more structural solidarity, more labor solidarity. Do you see that at all? You see it through organizations like Jen Poo's organization and the work that they're doing is the Domestic Workers Alliance, I think it's mm. called. But on the day-to-day of caregiving, I think it's just such survival mode yeah. for so many family caregivers and paid caregivers that I don't think you see it enough. And I put part of the blame too on this prevailing attitude that sneaks in sometimes about, well, Family is individual, right? And when we see this with parenting as well, it's an individual problem. It's not a societal problem. Like your children are your responsibility. Your parents are your responsibility. And and it's just so not helpful. And you can't really draw the parallel between child care and elder care there because so many people who are parents planned to be parents, you know, obviously not everybody, but many made the conscious choice to become a caregiver, a parental caregiver. None of us who were born made the conscious choice to then someday do elder care. So when we have these conversations, like your parents are your responsibility and it's what you should do as a good daughter, well, that's not necessarily true. And you know, what about all of the people who are caring for parents who maybe didn't do a good job of caring for them? Yeah, that's a really, really hard one, right? It's a really rough relationship, right? Mm-hmm. And to try to think about how can I be compassionate and generous with my care and my time when my parent didn't necessarily give that to me. Right. It's tough. So many caregivers find themselves suddenly thrust into this exhausting, difficult, and urgent situation, usually by surprise. It's a common theme amongst caregivers the feeling of being totally unprepared. After one more short break, I'll ask Liz, before things got so hard, what do you wish you would have known?
Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. What do you wish that someone told you at some point when you were in the thick of caregiving? Like, what message do you wish that you were able to internalize during that time? Well, I actually got a message during caregiving that was really, really helpful to me. So there was this Mm. day right after both of my parents were diagnosed and I had moved my dad into memory care and it wasn't going well. You know, he wanted to know why he was locked up. And my mom was in assisted living. I just moved her to a new assisted living to be near me. And I was meeting with a hospice nurse to determine if it was time to start hospice for her. You know, my husband and I were, our relationship was so strained because I was drop everything and, you know, run to my parents. And he was like, why aren't you having your sister's help? And, you know, just Mm -hmm. to put, put a real pressure on. And I was missing my kids, feeling like the basketball games and the dinners I was missing were, you know, huge and could never get that time back. And I was barely floating at work. And I meet with this hospice nurse and I didn't like her when she first came in. I felt like she was really bossy and making all these assumptions that I was going to drop everything and care for my mother. And I asked to meet her in the hallway. And I think because I was so tired and at wit's end, I was way more blunt than I am in normal life. And I just said, I don't like you. I don't want to work with you. And I know really not my style, but it was that day. 
And I don't appreciate that you expect that I can be here 24-7. I said, I have a dad downstairs in memory care. The buildings were attached. Who needs me? I haven't seen my kids. My husband and I are fighting and I have a job that I can't lose. And, and I burst into tears. And this hospice nurse stopped and she said, I hear you and I get it. And she said, and I'm a single mother of teenagers. So I really get what you're saying. And she said, let's, let's figure this out step by step. She goes, your dad... Don't worry about him. He's being cared for by professionals and you can turn your attention to him when your mother dies. She said, your husband and kids, forget about them. Don't worry about them. She said, you don't need to be home for dinner every night when you are modeling for your children what unconditional love looks like. That is gonna be way more powerful than ever going home or making Mm -hmm. their basketball games right now. I still get choked up when I talk about this. And she said, your job is a different story. You can't lose your job. So let's figure out a new plan. And it was... Such an important conversation for me. And it kind of shifted everything that day. Yeah. Because it helped me compartmentalize. It helped me put together a short and a long-term plan. It allowed me to say, you know, somebody else was giving me permission to go to work and earn a living and not feel guilty about it. And so, I mean, my wish is more that everyone else could have a conversation like that, or at least have their get to their own thought process that you should never feel guilty about earning a living and you should never feel guilty about wanting to take care of your family. And so what do you have to do now? What do you have to let go of? And then feel free to just get that done. That's a really, really powerful story. And I can just imagine your reaction being like, oh, I don't like this nurse. And then, oh, they just completely shifted my paradigm for me. I dedicated (laughs) my book to this nurse because- It's amazing. And I I didn't even end up working with this nurse for more than a couple of weeks because my mom's situation changed. But- it left such an impact, yeah, that I dedicated my book to her. The last thing that I want to ask is for people who are either feeling desperate right now or feeling like anticipatory desperation about what's going to happen. What's the one thing that will make them maybe feel slightly less desperate? Yeah, and I don't mean to be self-promotional, but a group like the Working Daughter Facebook group, the reason I think it helps and it matters to so many people is because they find like people. And I often get messages and emails from people in the group like, I'm so glad I found you because now I know that I'm not alone. And oftentimes when they're talking about not being alone, it's not just like, oh, other people are, you know, juggling work and care. Oh, other people are dealing with dementia or it's, oh, somebody else vocalized the horrible thought that I had today about (laughs) how I can't take this anymore, but also knows that even though I mean that and it's true, I also love my parent and it's, you know, so there's a place where they can say these things that oftentimes we feel like we can't say. And so it's, it's that perspective of not feeling alone. So whether it's working daughter or any kind of caregiver support group, just so you can have these real conversations, I think is a real lifesaver to people. Well, I'm so grateful that we had this conversation today and I think it's going to be really meaningful to a lot of people. Thank you so much. Thank you. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. Thanks to Victoria Dominguez, Vox Audio Fellow, for her help on the show this week. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? 
We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at boxconversations at box.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us Monday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. Conversations.